we create supernatural monsters and vampires are a great example of this like i don't obviously we don't mean sparkly vampires we mean actual vampires um they we create these monstrous people basically um because it's difficult to accept that people are the monsters everything the everything that dracula is is humanity but he's just the worst of us and it's easier to feel safe if the monster has been clearly mythologized and made up because then you can partition that off and say this is a story this can't happen and i think the same is kind of true with magic um in the how do how do how does a planet come into being like bef- long before anyone had understood anything about um of the expansion of universes or galaxies like you know how does a planet come about being well it must be uh chronos you know like it must be the titans made it or or even you know when they looked back at things that were made and uh you know the romans surely must have had some sort of magical powers because how could they raise buildings so high uh, you know um and it puts it into the otherworldly which is definitely not real and you know that and then you've got the things that you actually have to cope with and deal with in your life. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 78 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me as always, my co-host, the Chewie to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, my dear MJ Kroon. How are you, MJ? Hello. I am doing great. How are you, Adrian? Doing very well. And if you want to get heisty with some morally great characters and some stabby stabby and hatchets and all that fun stuff, go pick up Among Thieves. MJ's nodding. She's puckering her lips because she knows shit gets stabby stabby. And if you want to pick up the sequel, (laughs) (laughs) check out Thick as Thieves to read this complete duology and support MJ's work. As well, a quick note for everyone out there listening or watching the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live. So check the links in the description to support what we do here. And don't forget to rate and read the podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Fanfiatic YouTube channel where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now joining us once again is the great Ed McDonald, author of Daughter of... It's Upside Down? Yeah, it is. Daughter of Red Winter. And this new sequel, Trader of Red Winter. How are you, Ed? I am excellent. Thank you very much. Um, you guys are so chirpy. It's like... Uh, <laughs> it's like, God, how old are these people? How do they get the energy? Like, <laughs> no one, like we're excited to be talking to you yeah. or something. I don't know. <laughs> these fucking spry young 31-year-olds. So I've I've just I just thought I'd bring down bring down Tenta Clara. Tenta Clara like yeah, Clara has been traveling the world with me recently and I thought why shouldn't she be on a podcast? I love yeah. it. Because MJ like and I have the energy to bring stuffy. in Yeah. To bring Look in your little like stuff right. octopi. I like it. Everyone, that is objectively would be way to too much fun. I would be fidgeting with those little tentacles all the That's- time. That's actually why I have it because um, when I, I, I was ill, I had um, I had a nerve condition um, and I, I was paralyzed and my fingers didn't work. So one of my uh, or a couple of my friends got me got me Tentaclara so that I could practice touching stuff and, and uh, 
through oh. the windy tentacles. That's actually how I have her. Um, but she she mostly just she mostly just sleeps. So she was your physiotherapy. That's beautiful. Yeah, now she travels the world. Well, welcome to the podcast, Santa Clara. <laughs> and heads up, this is part two of our two-part chat with Ed. So I recommend checking out part one to get to know him better. Today, though, we're seeing dead people as we dive into a masterclass <laughs> on supernatural magic. So to get started with this most magical masterclass, Ed, good sir, where did your fascination with the supernatural begin? Oh, you always have these questions that are like, I think about my past. <laughs> that all introspective. You write introspective character-driven fantasy, so fucking deal with it. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I just don't know. Like, where did it, where, it just seems more interesting to write about stuff that can't happen than to only write about stuff that can. And I, I mean, I realized like when recently when I was thinking about the Red Winter books, they're kind of a bit like Jedi. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, they are a bit, yeah, they can do some Jedi stuff. Um, but in a much more complicated way. Like, you know, Star Wars it's the force. Done. Done. That's all that was the explanation. That's all we needed. Like, um, I'm like That was all we needed yeah. until the explanations <laughs> came unnecessarily. <laughs> No, we wish we'd never heard of the Mitty Glorians. Exactly. Um, yeah, um, I think I think that there are certain stories that you can only tell where you are uh, involving magic, because um, our 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 history as a species, uh, ever since we could talk, people and people have been able to ask the questions that we can't ever know. You know some of the answers to, or we certainly couldn't until we had astrophysicists who were way cleverer than us. Um, well, I, I say us. You guys might be smarter than that. I'm certainly not. Um, asking it's like a side like, job as astrophysicist. No <laughs> yeah, right. That's my day job, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the, you know, all those myths, all the religion myths, um, you know, going uh, our earliest written work being um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Like, these are all, these are, uh, you know, the first work written in English is, uh, is uh, first literary work anyway, is um, Beowulf. You know, like all through, all through the history of humanity, we've believed that there are, there must be, th there must be beings that can do stuff we can't. Because otherwise, how do you make sense of anything else in our reality? Now, uh, and I think, I think those, those stories and those myths filter through into you. Um, I loved Greek myths when I was growing up. They, um, and Arthurian myths. Um, <clears throat> those, those were absolutely my favorites um, as a kid. And there are certain stories you can't tell unless someone is able to, you know, like nuke a city with a flick of their hand. Like <laughs> that power disparity between mortal and immortal is, um, is it's, a part of, it's a part of humanity's storytelling history. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit more. What what do those supernatural beliefs uh, and and how they show up in histories, religions, folklore, mythologies? Uh, how do you what are what do you think that tells us about human nature and you know how it kind of shapes the way we interact with the world and the way we kind of think about things like death, the afterlife, all those like real heavy topics. Well, it's it's very much um, tied in with the way that we create monsters for our stories as well, whether they are a hydra, a dragon. Um, and I think I think this is my best way of reflecting into that question: is that we create 
supernatural monsters and vampires are a great example of this. Like, I don't obviously we don't mean sparkly vampires, we mean actual vampires. Um they we create these monstrous people, basically, um, because it's difficult to accept that people are the monsters. Everything the everything the Dracula is is humanity. Like he's just the worst of us. And it's easier to feel safe if the monster has been clearly mythologized and made up. Because then you can partition that off and say, this is a story, this can't happen. And I think the same is kind of true with magic. Um, in the how do how do how does a planet come into being? Like bef- long before anyone had understood anything about um of the expansion of universes or galaxies. Like, you know, how does a planet come about being? Well, it must be uh, Kronos, you know, like it must be the Titans made it. Or or even, you know, when they looked back at things that were made and, uh, you know, the Romans surely must have had some sort of magical powers because how could they raise buildings so high, uh, you know? Um, and it puts it into the otherworldly, which is definitely not real, and you know that. And then you've got the things that you actually have to cope with and deal with in your life. But I do believe, I do think with that mythology that there is, I don't believe that in, in our distant past, when people were telling each other stories and telling myths, that anyone thought they were real. They, I think they told, because do you know how difficult it is to know what happened in the next village along to you? Yeah. Like even today, even getting a getting the truth on something as clear as the capital attacks on you know the the assault on American democracy perhaps it's just there in black and white you can't you can't miss it and yet people will still disagree the idea five thousand years ago that anyone could legitimately say nope this is definitely what happened in the beginning <laughs> like, no one was trying to claim it it was meant they they you know. It was meant to be. They're, they're parables and, and allegories, and the Greek myths are a great example. Obviously, Greek myths isn't five thousand years old, but it's it's a. They're a great example. Like, you know, don't look at women when they're when they're getting undressed in the river. If you do, you'll get turned into a deer. Like, <laughs> she might be a goddess. Don't trust a swan. Like, you know, these, I like, agree with that one though. Your up. I would say these are all great advice. Still, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but a good, I, I think a good way of thinking about something like the Greek myths is these are a, a stable of um, IP characters who you can talk to other people about in your, you know, your uh, early communities where, yeah, we all know who, like, Thor is. We all, we all know who Ra is, and we can talk about them and have stories as though there's a connection. You know, it's, it's like the Marvel Universe. But for gods, um, and so why not give them superpowers? Aren't, aren't, aren't the, those, there's a big difference between, say, a Judeo-Christian god who is all-powerful, singular, and the pantheon gods of, of you know um, the ancient world that who fought each other, whose powers change at random depending on what story they're in. And it's a bit like it's just like a Marvel universe. It's the it's yeah. the, the ancient combined universe, the ACU. And it's fascinating because this this distinction in the ACU, that's great. This distinction between what is magic and what is mythology, the lines of that just become so blurred. But I like what you said about how nobody was trying to define 
anything back then. So from your perspective now, like the way that you perceive uh, something like magic in the context of mythology, in the context of supernatural folklore and all that kind of stuff, how does, how does that, how does that kind of come to, to terms in your, in your head in terms of like, how do I grapple with this, this rather nebulous fucked up kind of distinction? Well, I'm glad you've asked that, Adrian, because <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I'm not. What well, I'm. Um, if you're. If you're. Uh, if our viewers don't know um, the difference between hard and soft magic systems, I won't explain it here because most of them will go and look it up if you've not heard the difference. But um, any anything can work depending on the type of story you're trying to tell. So. Um, Blackwing and the Raven's Mark books, they are they have both elements in. I have magic that has rules, and I have magic that doesn't have rules. Um, Red Winter is the same, except the, the big difference being, in the Raven's Mark, the protagonist, the first-person narrator, never... Well, no, that's not quite true, not never. But he, in the first two <laughs> books, he doesn't have any magical powers. He doesn't... And that means that the magic gets to be mysterious... It doesn't have to be, it has to be consistent. It can't, you can't, you know, you have to understand this person can do a thing which is threatening and it has to repeat, it can't disappear late in the book. You know, that's just continuity. But if your protagonist doesn't have an inner knowledge and working of the magic, you do not have to describe in great detail how that works. And a good example, I've just read a book called The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan. Um, it's out next year. Oh, yeah, you, you've got the only other review on Goodreads. Yeah. I yeah. know. I loved it. I thought it was so good. <laughs> great, great book. Um, his, his magic users, the main character is not one of them, and so we never have to know how what they're doing. He does explain it, but you can get away with a one-sentence description of how it works. They channel it from the other place. What's that? Yep. <laughs> oh, it's mysterious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas what I went and did in... Uh, Red Winter, is I went, yeah, why don't I have like uh, like a teenager who starts learning magic from the first chapter of the first book? Ah, oh, I need a system. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that means I need to learn the magic. <laughs> you, and you have to have yeah. real-type rules. Um, and you get to break them when you want to, but you have to know what they are to break them. It's like grammar. Mm -hmm. As long yeah. as you know what it's meant to be, it's fine when you change it. I mean, you know... That that thing where you may be familiar with this, where an editor puts in your in the comments, but why is it that this person doesn't seem to have aged over the forty years that have passed? Or, but how did he get from the ground floor to the sixth floor in less time than the hero who went up the stairs? And you just write magic question mark <laughs> step for voice. <laughs> <laughs> they. They hate that. Editors hate that. You know, it's the yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, certainly Witch Queen that I've just finished, Witch Queen of Red Winner, is, I mean, it says it all, doesn't it? If you write a book where someone has become an actual Witch Queen, then you've got to be able to explain constantly to the reader, how are they doing this? Why does it work? And what are the differences between what they did before and what they're doing now? Why is it stronger? Uh, but for me, I like for a fantasy book, the magic has should be tied as a core element of the plot. 
Um, the story should revolve around resolving the magical technicality. Otherwise, shouldn't you be writing historical fiction? Like, I don't think the magic should be just be flashes and bangs. I don't think someone should be a wizard just because it's cool to have a wizard. If they're a wizard, I feel like their wizarding should be impactful in some way, rather than just being, you know, you know, in Harry Potter, how they're all like, you know, doing all their expelliarmuses and stuff on on each other. And like Avada Kedavra is like the worst thing. Why doesn't someone just get a gun? <laughs> it's, it's, the magic bang! it's the magic bullet. Bang! Yeah. Like that's it. <laughs> You're like plot hole discovered. <laughs> it's the magic is less potent than basic technology from hundreds of years ago, and no one has realized. Yeah. Yeah. So they're yeah. not really doing magic. They're just children with, with bad guns. <laughs> yeah. No, because this gets into something that I've been thinking about in terms of like. Okay, so your approach for magic in the Red Win- the Red Winter Chronicles, where you realize like, fuck, I kind of have to make this a little bit more rigid in terms of its rules and stuff like that. And I know how much you don't want to do a hard magic system, Ed. I know, I know, dude. But, <laughs> but can you can you build a little bit more on term in terms of that um, yeah. magic systems as an aspect of the story, something that you meld with the world building, the characters, and the plot, essentially interlinking the major story elements with the magic such that it too is a vital component of the story. Like I, I love this, this kind of notion and I want you to dig deeper into that. So at the heart of these books, there is the concept of existential oneness. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ask a literary question. <laughs> this is what you get. <laughs> so even to the extent that at the back of um, the first book, there is actually a section where I explain how the magic system works. So the system is, for this, that um, or these these particular magic users, you expand your consciousness out from yourself into the world around. And I got to this by thinking, we're made up of atoms, and there's nothing between an atom and another atom. Like even unless we're in a vacuum where there's just nothing. But even then, if there's nothing between one thing and another thing, at the smallest level then does it matter if there's nothing between them at the biggest level? So two planets separated by a vacuum, two atoms also separated by vacuum. The only thing that matters is the size of the vacuum, but a vacuum isn't anything. Therefore, there's nothing separating either of them by definition. Therefore, everything is entirely in the same place all the time. And there is no meaningful difference between anything and anything else. If you're separated by nothing, you're separated by nothing. So this was the principle on which the magic system operates, that everything is one. So if everything's one, the one thing that defies my that I don't understand in physics is how my brain thinks I can hear myself talking in my own head. Like, what is that? Like, like it's a trick, sure. My brain's playing a trick on me, but, but what's hearing it? Like, it's me. And so the idea that the one thing you have is a soul which isn't something I believe in in real life, but in, for the purposes of writing books about ghosts, it's kind of important. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can expand that out into other things, you kind of start becoming one with them. So you ascend through a series of chances, expanding into um, yourself, then the other, the world around you, then into energy, into the mind, into life, and then into number six, which is death, which is what our our girl Rain, she's... She, she goes, I've got number one, I know myself, and I've got number six, I know the death. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the forbidden one, obviously, mm-hmm. because it makes you the necromancer lord. Um, <laughs> you're a Kedavra. 
<laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I mean, Rain, Rain, Rain's ultimate. Um, I mean, the body count. I think that, I think we have a body count of about fourteen in book one, which is very restrained for me. And then, <laughs> then we rapidly go into the into the triple digits in book two, and I haven't even estimated for book three. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I think we're in the it, It's one of these curves, right? I don't know enough math to be able to tell you what kind of curve. Thank you. <laughs> Next time to go, yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, so, so, but the the whole of Rain's problems on a personal level are caused by possessing this magic, which she she starts off just being able to see see ghosts, but that in itself is enough to get her stoned to death um, and punished and killed. Um, and she effectively becomes one of the people who do the punishing in her in hiding what she is. Um, but then progressively finds that that looking through the the gate of death is what gives her the powers she needs to do the things she wants for the people she loves and kill all the people she wants to stop. So um, uh, without the power, there isn't a story. She wouldn't be there. But it's also her character development in each each book. So in the first book, there is a kind of allowing herself to accept that she needs other people because she's she's withdrawn from them she's cut off from them and then in, in Traitor of red winter it's more about accepting herself um for who and what she is and uh no one has read witch queen but me at the moment so i won't i won't i won't even go into that that's the next podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah there you go there you go i love that though i feel like that's um a part of what makes it great though is when the character arc and the magic is just it's it's inextricably linked or uh you know from to each other and to the to the plot um so it sounds like you did some research or maybe you just know a lot about adams i don't know anything about adams uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you did some research in that front ed's, did moon, research. ed's moon landing out as an astrophysicist yeah. we've discussed this he may be secretly right um, but did, did research play into any other aspects of developing the supernatural magic or, you know, the, the system that you have for the Red Winter Chronicles? No, no, I don't do research. <laughs> I don't do any. Um, I just, it was shabby layman's understanding of astrophysics. Um, I, I mean, I occasionally I have to. Oh, I, I suppose, okay, I did some research the other day. I had to play what an, uh, videos of an avalanche to hear what it sounds like. So that I could describe it properly. Oh, I um, love doing research like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just YouTube, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's effective, though, right? It does. Imagine when you have to trick. go to libraries, <laughs> like you have to go <laughs> out the house. Ugh. Um, but mo- most of my writing doesn't really need it because I just, as a, uh, I write about the things that I love and I already know about, and that's why I want to write about them. So, um, occasionally, I'll I'll look up minor technical details of things um i did have to the the main research i did actually was looking into gaelic folklore um and also pronunciations because when your audiobook narrator comes to you and says how do i pronounce all these words (laughs) and you're like speak gaelic (laughs) and the word and (laughs) i'm like i don't trust google pronouncer bot to, to get these right so i did i did ask some gaelic speakers how to pronounce them they said the words you've, because I sort of bastardized certain words. Like, I can trace my history back to 1793 in Scotland. No one could call me out on this. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I used Scottish Gaelic, and uh, they were like, this word couldn't exist. 
Like you can't have, you can't put these letters together. And I was like, but how would you pronounce it? Right, you're like, yeah. do that. I already did. <laughs> it's already published. Sorry. Oh my God. Yeah, I, but also, also, it's inspired by it. it's. It's I'm you know I'm yeah. not I'm not writing in Gaelic. I'm not trying to. Um, I just I. Uh, I'm part part of me did want to sort of do some representation because you don't get a lot of Scottish based fantasy and. Um, both sides of my family are uh, different routes down from Scotland into England. Um, and I wanted some representation for, for Scotland um, because it's, it's a wild and beautiful place. And like, it, it really, you know, I think, I think fantasy feels very alive there um, as it always does in wild places. Um, so a little research there. I mean, if anyone from HMRC, that's uh, the IRS for the UK, for, for Americans. Um, if anyone is watching, I've also done a great deal of research in various countries around the world. Um, <laughs> field research, field research. Yeah, yeah, I have your studies, if you will. <laughs> I've done a lot of research in California. <laughs> I've done. Uh, it's it's true though, like because everything ends up being research anyway. Um, and one of my biggest tips for for aspiring authors is uh, is. Just travel. Go to as many places as you can. See as much of the world as you can. Because, like, it's great if your research has an actual targeted focus. But sometimes research is just being alive. Like, you need to be having strong emotional reactions to things because that's what books are about. Books are just about someone's emotions start one place and they end up somewhere else. And they're happy, they're unhappy, and they try and get happier. And if you write grimdark books, they they probably end up about the same. <laughs> or <laughs> they, they, sine wave. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, I I know for some people it's difficult if you have family responsibilities, if you have caring responsibilities, if your mobility is limited, all these things. Like, but the more that you manage to get get out there and see things and meet different people experience the world i think the better certainly as a fantasy author the better your writing is going to be yeah, yeah. I agree. well that's i'm a big believer that everything you see experience read uh write uh watch whatever all of that whether you mean to or not like at some piece of it it becomes a part of the greater you that then mm. you know you are the one that's writing your books um so the, conscious, speaking, the conscious blender yeah exactly you. uh, <laughs> so speaking <laughs> on that subject though um you know i i have to imagine that the, the projects that you're writing obviously all influence kind of you know one another um you know with the lessons you're learning what kind of big magic related lessons did you learn or do you think you've learned feel like you've you know played with uh during both your first series and the red winter chronicles um for for the first series it's it was easy right because the protagonist isn't doing the magic by the time <laughs> any any sort of mystical stuff going on it's book three and in book three book three is easy right Book one is hard because you've got to come up with something original. Book two is hard for reasons we spoke about last time. Book three is easy because it's just reveal, 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 end sequence, end sequence, end sequence, big payoff, hurrah! Like, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> so book three, it's, you, you should already know what happens somewhat in book three at least. Um, in the Red Winter Chronicles, what I learned was if you're going to drop 
a magic wielding ghost visitor mentor like obi-wan but it, it like basically if you cross obi-wan ghost with maleficent that's that's the queen of feathers you know <laughs> who incidentally is written in order that if it ever got made into a tv show a particular friend of mine could play her <laughs> she, so she uses some of her her inflections and um some of those but oh, yeah, um, i love that uh she if she turns up in chapter one, you should probably know who and what she is exactly before you get to start writing book three. Because the point of the series, like she, she's a big part of this story. And and I sort of had an idea. <laughs> sort of, but when I was doing my world timeline, there was a bit where I was like, right, I've got 5,000 years worth of world history here, and she's got to be in all of it. I should really try and make sure these events actually make some kind of sense. But for me, part of the discovery process in writing is it does all make sense. And when you force yourself into weird corners because you've gone, you go, oh, hang on, hang on. In book one, I said this. And in book two, I said this. And how can they both be true? You have to make it work, which means the thing you come up with gets stranger and stranger and more and more unlikely. But then you find my my brain then connects these weird angles together and it goes, that's so much better than anything I could have thought of if I didn't force myself. So <laughs> what I'm saying is it's all part of a process, isn't it? That's it. <laughs> no, but dude, that's, that, that, that is it though. It's like um, what we were talking about last episode in terms of the, obviously you can stick to an outline, you can stick to whatever kind of structure you you set for yourself when writing a story, but a lot of the stuff that happens that is better than anything you could have come up with came up, came up organically through the act of writing the story. And I think probably with, with magic systems and especially with supernatural stuff, like the weirder it gets, the more fun it is. I feel like weird magic is the most fun because you can play around with it in such a way that kind of warps our sense of reality. and you know, earlier we were talking about storytelling and how we have all these myths and, and folklore that exist and permeate human culture, human cultures across the world in different ways. Um, and how storytelling has been a major part of how supernatural beliefs and magical practices took shape. And I feel like a lot of that was just like humans using their imaginations and just getting really fucking weird, trying to explain things that they otherwise could not grapple with and at the same time like you said not being so rigid and having to define exactly what that thing is or why that why that thing exists or why this story took shape the way it did so do you want to dig deeper into the role of stories but specifically why fantasy is such a perfect playground for experimenting with these kinds of things with the strange with the esoteric with supernatural magic and and whatnot well fantasy is always a story about us today um, whatever you're writing, I I hate the I hate the expression everything is political because if you say everything's political, it means nothing's political because it's become a meaningless term, right? So I think that's a waste of time. Saying, but what I do think is, whatever we're writing about, even if we're writing historical fiction, we're still going to be so heavily influenced by today that we can't help but put those themes and, and motifs in it. Um, so fantasy is a way of exploring things that are important to us in a world which is divorced of all the real-world connotations that it normally has to. So if you look at, say, um, Jarvacombe's uh, Trouble with Peace, the Age of Madness series, 
is about Brexit. The whole series is an allegory for Brexit. There are even phrases that some of the characters use, which are directly taken from British politicians at the time. And it's it casts it into another light because we get to explore it with different characters where we don't have preconceptions about who and what they are before they even start speaking. Um, or, you know, um, uh, if we, if I, if I take my books, what am I, if I look at my Raven's Mark uh, on a more personal level, you know, my second book, I'm like, Oh, that's my divorce book. Like that's that I can, I can, um, when I read back, I'm like, oh god, I remember thinking like this when I was uh, like I, I, I just got divorced, and then my the third book in the series is like, this is my joy book, like this is this is my hope book, like about being less depressed. Um, but they, I, and because of that, I could only ever written them in that particular moment in time, and I could never have written them at a different one because they rely on these emotional experiences I was having. And the fantasy, for me, lets me take myself completely out of myself. So it becomes a subconscious, um, it's almost therapy, perhaps. I, I don't know what, I'll, what it'll be. I, when, I suppose, um, you know, there will be a day where I look back on the first Red Winter book and think there's a lot of feelings in here about being trapped, um, forced into a lifestyle, um, you know, things like being out of your control. And it's like, yeah, there's a pandemic. We were all stuck at home. I'm sure. I'm sure I'll reflect on that in the future and find like, yeah, this is a book about about the world being hostile all of a sudden, you know. So, um, fantasy for me is is a subconscious floodgate, and also swords are awesome, lasers are awesome, <laughs> laser swords. <laughs> like, who doesn't like like? I don't know why we love dragons so much. It's like they're, they're just big lizards. Just do. They're just oh, cool. Yeah. They're just the dinosaurs cool. with wings, man. Who said that, that meme with uh with Marge Simpson? I just think they're neat. I want to write vampires. Um, I'd love to write some vampires, but I mean, I want to write vampires the way that that vampires are. Uh, you know, in my mind, vampires are utterly, irredeemably evil creatures, and they're emotionally predatory as well as um as uh physically and all the mythology only works for me if they are Im impossibly evil um they they we're, we're their food we're their food they don't care about us so i'd love to write like vampires let us tell stories well let's be honest at the moment they're largely used to tell stories about very old men Getting it on with girls who far too young to be with old men. That's 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 the way that the vampires are used in the modern age. So you know, Angel and Buffy, Vampire Diaries. Don't get me wrong, I watch all these, but, <laughs> but you're like I'm that, not hating, but also <laughs> I do not condone vampire, this. That's what, vampires are a stand-in for the sexual fantasy of older men with younger women. It's 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 really quite gross. Like what? Just because he looks like he's seventeen and pretends to go to school sometimes, so, you know? Yeah, like, dude. Why is he pretending to go to school? <laughs> it's a What's question I've had for a long time about <laughs> those storylines. Because <laughs> he knows that he's looking for those kinds of girls. He knows he wants the nice things. <laughs> precisely why they're going to a school. That's the only like at the start of the Vampire yeah. Diaries. You know, the only reason that the, the vampires are going to school is to hook up with girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. they conveniently forget about that 
in later series and they just stop going to school. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, ah, we don't want. Yeah, yeah we, we, we moved on from that. We're not yeah. going to address that. So yeah, whether whether it's a whether it's um, a sort of um, erotica story or it's a story like you know Dracula is a story about corruption and um, you know the ir- the impossible um, the the difficulty in fighting something which is invisible and lascivious and um, so it's it's the use of the fantastic to tell the stories that matter to us that's that's my feeling yeah. I like that. Well, we've talked a little bit about vampires or a lot of bit about vampires. Do you Gross. have other favorite examples <laughs> of like supernatural magic in fantasy, folklore, myth, and specifically Gaelic for- folklore? If you have any, I'm very curious. I don't know much about it. So, um, so I mean, anything with a tentacle, I'll, I'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> give me a Kraken. Give me a, give me Cthulhu. Where, where's our, where's our other guest? She's got to come back in here for a second. Yeah, right. <laughs> you summon Tentaclara. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are there are a startling number of like um, of Gaelic um, mythological creatures, which are just horses that live in the sea. There's a lot of water horses. Um, what's really interesting about them, as well, also just lots of monsters that are just like a person, but he's only got one arm and one eye and one leg, and he hops around. Uh, like it's not much of a monster like <laughs> if anything it's like don't bother it <laughs> um there's there's one in particular which i like which is um uh i think um there there's a type of um sort of ghostly washerwoman who she kneels down um and she's washing um laundering the clothes of the dead basically um but she, like and like I didn't make this up, but basically if she has very long, saggy breasts, and if you <laughs> go and grab one of them, then she has to grant you a wish. What? <laughs> that is like, like the that is like the folklore version of like this. pull my like the folklore version of pull my finger and I'll fart kind of thing. It's, like, so, it's, so, it's just so improbable. Like someone would have come up with this. Like, um, and if you, that, here we are. Yeah. And if, <laughs> But you have to sneak up because if she looks at you, die or something like that. Like, yeah, um, sneak up and grab a tit. Just <laughs> Jesus Christ! It's, it's, the, it's the random and improbable ones that there. Instead of being like, yeah, it's just like a really big like lion and it's got a snake for a tail. It's like that's not that interesting, is it? But like, you know, saggy boobed hag. <laughs> Washington the gold is. <laughs> this is this is like this is like the Gaelic Celtic version of like a, a genie. It's just like go grab this. She'll grant your wish. Yeah, just go give it a tug. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get caught though. Don't let her see. Quite, quite a lot of them. Okay. Also, quite a lot, like the folk I hate that phrasing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> The folk was great. Lots of them are friendly, though. Lots of them don't bother you very much. Like, and I, th- I think they hail back to a world where, I mean, I don't know what snakes live where you round round your way. Um, Anaconda, anacondas, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was talking to once. I got, yeah, I got nothing I got serious here. I'm in yeah. Michigan. <laughs> you got garter snakes. Baby. We get, we do have a lot of garter snakes. We have, we have some rattlesnakes and stuff, but that's as bad as it gets here. I saw a rattlesnake for the first time ever a few weeks ago, um, just crossing, sleepily crossing a path in front of us. Um, like. Yeah, we were like, we're going back. <laughs> um, but, um, but 
if you imagine, like I, I've lived in the UK all my life, and I know we don't live that agriculturally anymore, but um, our only venomous snake is is uh, the adder type of viper, and I've never seen one. I've never seen a grass snake, which is the other type of snake we have. And so if someone was bitten by an adder, and it's not going to kill you much, not not really going to kill you an adder, but like, you know, you get a bad swollen up leg, and someone came and told you this 2,000 years ago, then what's the difference between whether it's, it's a snake that's bitten you or it's the blue men of the minch? You know, like, like it's a goblin. Like, both of them are equally far-fetched because you've never seen yeah. either. So why – and if someone's told you, yeah, there's this lizard and it hasn't got any legs and it just goes through the grass and it has a rattle on its tail – You'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why is that more plausible? So, I, you know, the, I think a lot of folklore um, is, yeah, your grandma says, if you think of the number of people who claim to have seen ghosts, you know, shame, shame no one's ever managed to capture any in any sustainable scientific proof, isn't it? But the amount of people who will tell you they've seen a ghost or their grandma told them she saw a ghost, usually, then... It's not any more implausible to believe in the water horses who live off the coast, who, of course, you've never seen the mermaids. Why would you see the mermaids? They're in the sea. You're not a sailor. So it's easy to see how people would believe in all these things. But I love how mundane they are. Like, they're just like people. <laughs> but the, thing is, the thing is, Ed, for me, from my perspective, the reason that it persists, even in its mon mundane nature, is because of ritual. Mm. You know, it's like the ritualized nature of storytelling and folklore and that kind of thing but also practices like here in ecuador there are so many different practices for like i've mentioned this on the podcast before but like with my my seven month old baby clothes my mother-in-law tells me do not leave it outside because little like gnomes will come and steal the baby's clothes what? because it, it's it fits them kind of they thing. might Which they might objectively adorable they very well might yeah and i but love the thing that is like <laughs> But like with supernatural, with the supernatural, I feel like the reason it persists so much is because of that ingrained ritual, ritual practice that goes from generation to generation. And then you have things like paganism and, and natural magic and necromancy as, as, as we perceived it back then. And you have things like spirits and mediums and seances and all that. But then on the other hand, and this is like a big thought that I had uh, while we were talking is how fantasy and books that we read are also ritualized practices that make the that that allow these folklore and these supernatural ideas to persist. So I wanted to get your take on the parallels that we could draw between these things and how they kind of connect us over time and connect us individually. Well, the, um, in terms of sort of ritual, the ritualization of of what we read, um, I think that's a really interesting concept and. If we look at the cursed place, otherwise known as Goodreads, um, <laughs> then I, what I think we can see more and more, and maybe it just used to be invisible where we, you know, not everyone had a place where they could post their opinion. But what I think we, we see there is people's expectations of what they're going to be given going into a book in some quarters are very, very firm, and they will gladly one star a book if it fails to live up to any any of their specific criteria and there's a big it seems like there's a big and i i blame tiktok for this in some ways that 
there's a big push for characters to be infallible again. And like sell it's because a lot I think there are some readers who want a self-insert character, a blank slate, personality free effectively. So when they read characters who are making poor life choices and bad decisions, they feel this is a self this is a criticism of themselves because they've ritualized what do I get from a book and what belongs in a book. And therefore if a book fails to meet the ritual requirements they don't get the outcome and therefore that's a bad book which is it it's a bit of a like and i understand why people want content warnings on things but it's part of the same deal if you're going to feature some real heavy stuff about real world stuff i get it i understand but warning people about everything they're going to encounter you're meant to be challenged when you read. You you shouldn't be you know you shouldn't be horror slammed. There's one very popular fantasy book which does a real dirty on the reader, where maybe eighty percent of the way through the book it switches tone from kind of ch- quite young and sim- simplistic into utter brutal horror. And you have kind of a promise you make your reader at the start of the book about what to expect. If I've read half this book. I shouldn't then get grotesque descriptions of sexual violence thrown at me. And I feel particularly passionate about this because I was listening to this book as an audio book on a motorway. And so I couldn't turn it off when this, when this change suddenly came in. And I was, I was really, really quite angry about it because I wouldn't have listened to it. Um, But we do have expectations. We don't need warnings unless we, we set up the, the premise and the tone. If you buy a horror book, and you're surprised that it features frightening things. That isn't the fault of the author. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's got a vampire on the front. What did you think it was going to be? <laughs> uh, or like, you know, like it, it's got it's got a it's got a shirtless Highlander on the front of it. Maybe it's going to have some sexy bits, y'all. You know. <laughs> um, but I do think there is a, we have rituals involved in our in our reading, and even even the way we sit down to read. Like I listen to a lot of audiobooks these days. Um, and I, I, I just love how they send me to sleep, and then I have to keep finding where I was over and over. This is the same chapter eighteen times. Um, it's my curse as well with the audiobooks. Yeah. Unless I mean, I listen to them either when I'm driving or when I'm relaxing, and inevitably, accidental naps <laughs> every time. <laughs> no matter how good the book is, like it's not the book's fault. I'm just sleepy. <laughs> Um, do you have any, just to kind of bring it home here, do you have any other final pieces of advice that you'd like to offer authors specifically related to incorporating superman- supernatural magic into their stories? Um, I would say you need to have your rules, but you don't need to know what they are until you finish writing them. If you don't, don't you know, you don't want to get, constrained in what you can and can't write by a set of rules you made up before you did the writing like make them up as you go along and then at the end codify them for yourself so that you've been consistent that's and the reader doesn't have to know how everything works it's not required as long as the as the impacts of the supernatural remain consistent in the way that characters respond to them so um, one of one of the things I always love talking about is power escalation, power levels. Um, 
You know how <laughs> in the Power Rangers it goes, they have a fight with the putties and they beat up the putties really easily and then the monster comes down, they can't take it in hand-to-hand combat, so sometimes they'll get out their weapons and maybe that, and so now it can't beat them, so it has to grow big and then they get the Zords and then it pulls off its special move so they have to make the Mega Zord and then finally they play that same clip of the Lightning Sword. Um, <laughs> There's a steady escalation of power, which is why it works. And it's simplified for kids, but it's why it works in storytelling. What you what what I struggle with sometimes in fantasy is when the power levels get so out of control so fast. I mentioned the vampire diaries before, and this is a good example. Um, you know, in the vampire diaries, there are vampires in season one. In season two, I think it's like the original vampires or something. They, they, you can't kill them except with a special silver dagger. And then in series three, what do you got now? Oh, it's the mother of the vampires. <laughs> so, and then it's like, you know, you've got, and by that point, they're just one more type of vampire and it doesn't mean anything anymore. And being a vampire doesn't mean anything anymore because the super vampires are all there. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit like, uh, I think I think anime has this problem a lot as well. <laughs> like it's like this isn't even my final form. <laughs> it's like <laughs> why aren't you? Using, I'm looking at you. Why aren't you using your best form first? <laughs> Just what? start in your final form. <laughs> Still love it though, don't we? <laughs> Why didn't you just go to fucking Super Saiyan immediately, man? <laughs> Nine thousand. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, Ed, that's it for this mini masterclass and our two-parter with Ed McDonald. Thank you so much for basking in the occult and fantasy and all that kind of fun stuff with us, buddy. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. And um, please, uh, Daughter of Red Winter is out, uh, has been out for a year. Traitor of Red Winter is out um, October 23rd. So and when this episode, is, out, when this episode is live, yeah. Yeah, she would love to is Ed's. Yeah, support Tanta Clara. Support and Tanta, Ed. support Octopus. <laughs> By my books. <laughs> Slightly menacing. Yeah. She is. She is um, menacing. As well, for anyone who contributes to our Patreon at $10 or more a month, you can check out a reading by Ed from Trader of Red Winter. Uh, so go check that out. Go get the books. Support Ed. Support Tentaclara. Ed, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter on Ed, at EdMcDonaldTFK. We will call it Twitter till we die. Um, you can find me on uh, what the, the picture on Instagram, uh, Ed McDonald Author. I think I'm on TikTok on the same name. I think uh, Ed McDonald Author. I think I'm on Facebook under Ed McDonald. Just um, scroll past the. Uh, I, I can't do the same joke again. That's the, I'm not. I'm not doing the joke. I'm not doing. There, is, there is a murderer called Ed McDonald who comes up ahead of me. Not the famous person. Not the murderer. Yeah. The next one. The, next <laughs> one. the other the guy. Yeah. The guy that looks like this. <laughs> yes. I'm alive and not in jail. That is how you identify me as the author. <laughs> you can also follow SFF Addicts on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at SFF Addicts Pod, or you can follow me at Adrian M. Gibson. MJ, what about you? Yeah, you can find me across all the socials at MJ Kuhn Books, all one word, or MJKuhn.com. You can find all my links. So Brilliant. Now, keep reading. Keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.